0: Hello, and welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. My name is Sean T. Collins. I'm a television critic, and I'm the author of Pain Don't Hurt, Meditations on Roadhouse. And joining me, as always, is my illustrious co-host,
1: Gretchen Felger-Martin, film critic and horror author. Uh, My first
0: novel, Manhunt, is coming out next February. And today we are talking about International Assassin, a very out of character, at least for the time episode of The Leftovers from Season 2, in which the main character, Kevin Garvey, played by Justin Theroux, has to make his way through a what's best described as a purgatorial Sheraton (laughs) in some kind of afterlife or hallucination or prolonged coma dream, a la the Kevin Finney stuff in The Sopranos. It threw people for a loop. That much I remember. I remember that very vividly.
1: Yes, people were uh, put off.
0: Yes, that was the thing about it. In revisiting my review, because I was covering it for Decider that season, I noticed how much of my review was sort of positioned as pushback against the idea that this sort of detour from the main narrative was fruitless or distracted from the main themes of the show, you know, grief and loss and shame and guilt and all these kinds of things that these characters feel in the in the aftermath of the sudden departure when I always forget what percent it is. It's like one, two, two three it's percent. It's like two or two and a half percent. Of the world's population just vanished without a trace with no explanation. And a lot of my review was like, you know, it doesn't, just because this is some sort of weird exercise in slick surrealism doesn't mean that it's not still exploring those same themes. It's just doing so I thought fairly obviously with genre and metaphor and spectacle, all yeah, the things I that think, I love the most.
1: I think that all the central themes of the depart of uh, leftovers run very cleanly right through this episode. I mean, you have the plot with Patty and her husband that she's left. who's played by the same guy who plays uh Herb on Mad Men, which he's a great character actor.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's he's Um, a dead ringer for my landlord,
1: by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And then just the entire motif of the hotel, this liminal space full of trapped birds and sort of intentionally absurd blandness.
0: Mm -hmm. Sort of shot through with notes of ominousness from... From time to time, yeah, and that never really get explained. Like, you'll see a nurse who's holding an organ donation—you um, know, one of those coolers that they put donated organs in to keep them preserved—and she's speaking excitedly in Spanish, like she needs to do something. And we never find out who she is or what she needs to do or what the organ is for. There's the bird that flies around and eventually gets killed within inside, inside the hotel. There's a priest crying. In an elevator, for reasons unknown, a cop walks through a hallway with a bag over his head, and someone sort of leading him cuffed someplace, there's a repeated motif. You know, at first, you're not sure what's going on, but there's a little girl who falls into a pool and gets revived. And the whole time all these things are happening, it's it's creepy. It is. In revisiting the episode for this podcast, it was... It was unnerving, even though I already knew basically what, obviously I knew how things were going to resolve, and even the entire shape of the rest of the series. I think it's still very, very effective.
1: I mean, everything about it is purpose-built to sort of take you out of the show's norm and thrust you into a new one, which is, is disconfitting by its very nature.
0: The thing that I wanted to to note in terms of the, the sort of surreal imagery is that I think the reason it works so well here is because unlike the series co-creator Damon Lindelof's other series lost and watchmen, there's no promise of resolution or answers. Like in fact, it almost, the leftovers almost was a reaction against loss insofar as from the get go, he was very clear that there, it will never be explained what happened. Never. Yeah. And that's such a huge difference from Lost, where they kept insisting that they knew exactly where they were going, which was actually a bald-faced lie, <laughs> right. and which you find out afterwards. Which I still think is pretty outrageous. There's a lot about Lost I enjoy, but I always kind of enjoyed it as like pulp fiction, and the people who blew their brains out trying to figure out if nanobots were involved and in shit like yeah, that. Really. I never had any patience for that. So I still, I you mean, know,
1: you've written about this, but that's that's one of the great. Branches of insufferable pseudo criticism.
0: Yes, yes.
1: It's people trying to solve puzzles without all the pieces, and it's at best totally joyless.
0: Yeah, I don't. I never got it, and at the time, I didn't get it. I was like, it's so clear. You get so much new information every week as the as the narrative twists and turns, and the, and and they bring out more surprises and add more elements to the overall mystery everything you know changes from week to week. So how can you possibly figure out the end game? And why would you try? I don't get it. And then the thing about Watchmen, which I think for the first few episodes had this same sort of blunt force surrealism to it in a way that I found entertaining, you know, these big bold music cues and these strange unexplained images and stuff is that being a Watchmen sequel, he was still trying to ape Alan Moore and, come up with this sort of perfect clockwork narrative that introduces mysteries that are all explained and everything gets solved by the end, because that's how, that's basically how Alan Moore rolls. Alan Moore is a clockmaker in terms of his scripting. And I like Alan Moore, but that that's always been my main beef with him is that you see the authorial hand so clearly all the time. And it's a little bit of, it's,
1: it's not that it's bad or shoddy technique. I mean, that's a, a branch of fiction that goes back thousands of years, but it's not for me generally right. speaking, right. The book of Alan Moore's that I love best from Hell is probably his most like discursive and non obvious
0: yeah, and even there you have a scene where you know he takes his Driver on a, a on a tour of London, and all of a sudden the map is like a, pent, a pentagram or whatever yes. it is, you know, and, and yeah. So it's still it's still it's guilty of that to a certain extent. Sure, not that I'm complaining. I'm really not. I'm complaining about Lost, I guess, and Watchmen certainly, and just trying to say that in, in picking the leftovers as a project and insisting that there would never be an answer to why everybody disappeared, Lindelof freed himself from his worst instincts as a writer and as a showrunner. absolutely. And this was an episode where that really pays off in a big way.
1: There's so many parts in this show where he throws something at the wall just to see if it sticks and mm-hmm. it works out really well. I mean, by the end, the leftovers was easily one of the best things ever put on television, really by season two where it just instantly firmed up yeah, into this, this gorgeous show
0: it's for sure one of those shows that you know like a billions or a halt and catch fire where by the end of the first season there were glimmers of what it could become billions had that moment around the funeral arc in the first season and halt and catch fire i've often talked about when they're trying to decide whether to whether or not to abandon the sort of user-friendly interface that makes the computer special but also more expensive and heavier and more difficult to sell and you have these glimmers in the first season where like you've spent episode after episode being like, "Ugh, what a drag this, this shit is. And then there's something like, Oh, okay. All right. And then somehow with the start of season two, they're off to the fucking races. Yep. It's an amazing trajectory. I don't know how they do it. And I wouldn't, I, it's not a trajectory that I would, if you asked me before I saw any of these shows, I wouldn't have thought that possible. Like, no, I,
1: I agree. You know, I, my, Opinion is generally that someone is either good at telling stories or they're not. Right. But sometimes, I suppose, you need a moment to get your legs under
0: you. Yeah, and I I think that the reason International Assassin works as well as it does is the same reason that it did bother some people. Which is that by this point in Season 2, The Leftovers was extremely effective and skillful. Character study. And people felt that by removing this character from the the everyday world, everyday, you know, with qualifications, in, insofar as 2% of the world's population disappeared without a trace. But other than that, it's a fairly <laughs> realistic show. And by removing the Kevin Garvey character from that context and plopping him into this nether world, that you lose the exploration of him as a character. But I, I just don't think. I think nothing could be further from the truth. That's
1: so interesting because almost the whole point of Kevin is that he's opaque to himself.
0: Yes. Yes. And this is the episode where he has little miniature breakthroughs that are not portrayed as such. Like there's a scene where he's being interrogated by the minions of Senator Patty Levin. In in the real world, Patty Levin was a local leader of the sort of post-apocalyptic death cult, the Guilty Remnant who, after she kills herself, haunts Kevin, whether as a ghost or whether as hallucinations, it's not clear. And in this alternate reality, she's a senator and she's running for president, and it's Kevin's job to assassinate her. And while he's being interrogated, they ask him his name, and he says, it's Kevin Harvey, which is his pseudonym. And they squirt Windex into his eyes, and then he admits his name is Kevin Garvey. And they say, why did you register under a false name, and he says, I don't want anyone to know who I really am. Yeah. And then they ask him why he smokes, and he says he's addicted to nicotine, and they spray the Windex in his eyes again, and he says, to remind myself that the world ended. And these are things that he cannot articulate in the real world. Like back in Jordan, Texas, where he now lives, these things aren't going to come out of his mouth. It's It's here in this weird liminal space that he's able to say these things. And right in
1: the same way that in a dream you say things that would shatter your real
0: life right right exactly
1: and in the same way that these these enigmatic images of distress and suffering and need and excitement in the in the background of this whole hotel sequence mirror the feelings we carry around with us every day that we can't express or that we can't seem to get our arms around that are incompatible Mm. with the self we've built.
0: And even within the context of the, this afterlife or whatever we want to call it, like I mentioned the crying priest. Well, in the closet, in the hotel room where Kevin wakes up nude in the bathtub and finds himself with no explanation. One of the outfits is the vestments of a priest and another of the outfits is a police uniform. And, There's that cop with the bag over his head being walked through the hallway underneath the hotel. So, even in a level that's never articulated within the afterworld itself, he's still trying, like his mind is still trying to figure out things about itself and about his self conception. Is he a holy man? Is he a lawman? What is he? He doesn't know. So, there's that's, I think, why you see these strange as you said images of distress that are in the background because he's distressed
1: yeah it, it's it's eloquent but very simple you know mm-hmm. there's there's mm-hmm. no code to crack here
0: that's very important and that's very important there's no code to crack there yeah. are allusions and there are metaphors and allegory uh, but that's very different than like trying to put piece together the clue the clues to find out like you know who's been doing this to the scarlet witch all season or whatever the fuck <laughs> it is you know like right. it's a different it's a it's an entirely different kettle of fish God, you mentioned the you-
1: uh, the bathtub and the ago, yes. which i thought was would be a fertile symbol for deconstruction because water and dying and coming out of water are so important in this episode mhm mhm um, and in the season as a whole, really.
0: Yes, that's true. That's true. You, know, you have
1: the the inciting incident where the girls vanish at the beach, and Kevin wakes up in the drained lake bed. Mm-hmm. But here, he emerges from a bathtub when he's sent over, when he's poisoned by a man who subsequently kills himself at Kevin's invitation. Right. The poisoning, not the suicide. Right, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) I knew what you meant. Yeah. And then there's the sequence with the little girl who it eventually transpires is Patty. Mm -hmm. Which is so interesting because Kevin's relationship to his own children is pretty ambivalent. He is never what I would call like a, a successful father. No, God, no. He's absent a lot, certainly emotionally unavailable, even to himself. Mm -hmm. And yet, when he thinks of this woman who is in a lot of ways, sort of his nemesis and the albatross around his neck, the way that the world shows her to him is as a child who is defenseless, which I think says a lot about how he conceives of the cult that took his wife from him and almost killed his daughter. How so? I think that on some level, he understands that they do that because they have no power in the world. Mm. Because they are totally at the mercy of this awful Titanic thing that happened. Right. They have no defense against it.
0: And to the extent that we can believe that the story that um, the little girl version of Patty sort of expresses over the course of their interactions – is a true one, that she was emotionally and probably physically abused as a child and then married an abusive and philandering husband who berated her, much like her own father did. Because the, the, her husband is kind of conflated with her father yeah. by by the imagery in the hotel. like At first you think the little girl is this man's daughter, and then it becomes very clear that it's not. It's you know it's his the inner child of his wife and I do think that there is something uh, I don't know it's in a sense it speaks well of Kevin that he's able to conceive of his greatest enemy the woman who really helped ruin his life repeatedly by the way like yeah first she stole away his wife at least as far as he's concerned then she killed him herself in front of him leading him into all kinds of shenanigans. And then she's been haunting him as sort of a spectral uh, you know, voice on his shoulder. He still is able to see what turned her into this person that he disliked so much. And,
1: and in fact, the defining emotion that he feels toward her through this whole episode is pity.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I don't think you could have arrived at that without this. Him having sitting down and having a heart to heart either with her in real life or with her like ghost version that's been haunting him, like No,
1: you couldn't yeah. because when he is conscious, when he is suffering through what this this spectre puts him through, he's in distress and he's basically incoherent. He's not capable of functioning as an adult. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Kevin is really mentally ill.
0: Right, because there's a history of schizophrenia in his family. Right,
1: his father uh, has it.
0: Fa- right, right. So you you spend a great deal of, really, all three seasons, I think, wondering how much this is affecting Kevin himself, if he's if he's ha- is he having visions or is he hearing voices? You know what I mean? Like it, 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 you you don't know, and that uncertainty. Helps make this episode what it is, because you don't know. And I think you, if there were firmer ground on which to stand, the episode wouldn't be as effective.
1: I agree. You know, I, I think one way to read this episode is as Kevin's mind trying to make sense of the nonsensical life that he inhabits. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, this is not a conversation he would have with the real Patty, and I think that if you put them in a room together and she told him her life history, it probably wouldn't end with him crying for her. Right. But here where in the architecture of this dream world, this purgatory, it's important that he be with her ritually as he, as she dies, as he kills her, it imbues it with this meaning that's (laughs) absent from the reality of the situation. You know, the, the guilty remnant are nihilists. The things that she did to him were just motivated by spite and grief and nothing. Yeah. But in this, in this world, he can give it significance.
0: I find it really affecting. Yeah. Uh, boy. And I think it involves for, for, for the performers, you're going way out on a limb on this one. I think. And he has to spend so much of the episode just right on the verge of collapse. And it's, it's impressive work, I think. It really is. For a guy who is so good looking that he doesn't need to be impressive as an actor, you know? Yeah, Thoreau
1: does a great job of looking like he's one sentence away from just melting down completely.
0: Yep, yep. And I, I, you know, another thing, when I was going through my old review of the episode, I do think that he's unbelievably chiseled physically. And you see him nude. So, and they, you see him nude from the back, you know, you see his ass, basically. And there is basically a joke when he's getting sort of patted down by Patty Levin's security detail that he has a big penis because the, the guy who's patting him down says congratulations or whatever. And that, that will come up again the next time he's in the afterworld. Yeah, um, it's
1: very funny. Right. He's he's continually preoccupied with his own cock.
0: Yes. And I, I think that, you know, insofar as some of his good qualities come through in this afterworld, some of his, his vanity comes through. Like, I, I, I always thought that the kind of guy who spends however many hours a day he spends looking like that, of course he fancies himself an international assassin in his purgatorial afterworld or hallucination or whatever. Sure,
1: it's a classic male power fantasy.
0: Yep, yep.
1: He's, he's in the suit, he's debonair, he's James Bond.
0: Yes, exactly. Although because he has all the, he's plagued by all the self-doubt and self-loathing that he is, um, he does not enjoy this job.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, but he never enjoys anything. Exactly. That's my point.
0: I thought that was pretty canny, and I don't I don't know how deliberate that was, but when I talk about the appearance of male characters on these shows, like I, I do think they communicate quite a bit about what those characters value. And I think so, too. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, you know, it's like we were saying earlier, this is not a man. In a lot of ways, Kevin does not conform to typical masculinity. He has a lot of masculine traits, like his arrogance, his penchant for answering frustration with violence. Mm. his emotional unavailability but he does not have Bonhomie he does not have an ability to sort of go along to get along he doesn't have the kind of like easily charismatic dominance that men are expected to have
0: right right
1: He's, he's neurotic and you can smell it yeah I think my personal interpretation has always been that his vanity is written into the show.
0: Yes, I think so for sure.
1: The obsessive exercising, the secret smoking, and yep. you know, his 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 body is so ridiculously chiseled.
0: Yeah, he look he's like a Greek god. Yeah, part of that is, I guess, what you do when you date Jennifer Aniston for years. I guess, <laughs> uh, but. You know, he, he he's an interesting actor because of that. Like, he is this sort of himbo. Um yeah. But he's also a screenwriter, by the way. Like, like I think he co-wrote Iron Man 2. Okay. And, and, um, you know, like, he does all these things to sort of play against type. Like, in Zoolander, he's under sort of, like, heavy makeup and, like, a, a white dreadlock wig as a DJ. I don't know why just like one of those a lot of Zoolander's cameos are extremely obvious like the David Bowie one you know right. it's like oh it's David Bowie and they actually have a title card for David Bowie when David Bowie shows up but he's just sort of hidden in the background and i i i feel like there's a tension with him as a performer and as an artist where there's aspects of his life that are so hollywood and there's aspects of his life that are like oh i wouldn't have thought of that like oh he's a he's a he's a screenwriter huh okay all right oh he's on this Incredibly difficult and at first, like almost painfully dour or doer, however you want to pronounce it. Um, show about audiobook readers say doer.
1: That's that's just insane to me. I refuse to even countenance
0: it. It it was unbelievably upsetting to me the first time I heard it on an audiobook. I was like, no, no, no way. I refuse. We're gonna say in this house, we say dour. This is a pro dour podcast. (laughs) We're going to start
1: spelling it (laughs) D-O-W-E-R.
0: White Dower is basically what all these shows are about. Um, There's just a lot going on with this guy and with this character and with the interface between the two of them. And I think it's one of those situations like the casting of, let's say, January Jones as Betty Draper, where they cast someone who looked like Grace Kelly, only maybe even prettier. And f- for a reason, and I think they cast this godlike man for a similar reason.
1: I think so, too. It, I mean, it shapes practically every scene he's in. Mm-hmm. And I think it says it, his personality is pretty clearly informed by it. I mean, he, in a lot of ways, he's very passive.
0: Yeah. he's
1: He's used to the world sort of
0: coming to him. Right, which is the source of so much of the conflict in this episode insofar as he has to be unbelievably active. He's an assassin right. with a target. And he's constantly doing things. like he's He jumps into a pool to save the little girl, and he's he has to go through this whole rigmarole to kill his target, and then he has to go through another whole rigmarole to kill her actual self, who's a little child now. And he has to find this well outside the town, and it's a whole big thing. He encounters God... In the form yes, of a does. weird Australian man.
1: That's how he introduces himself on the boat in the Fraser episode in season three. <laughs> That's the guy I was telling you about.
0: That's the, one of the things I love so much about this episode is that there's this payoff a season later. You know, you have yeah. no idea like who is this strange Australian man that he encounters on a bridge. Right. Who offers Why him is the choice...
1: monologuing about fate and reality? And...
0: Right. Cause he's not like in a lot of the case, in a lot of this episode, it's a Wizard of Oz situation where, you know, the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion are the farmhands. You know what I mean? Like, the guy who poisons him shows up as the concierge who warns him not to drink the water, with the water being clearly the River Lethe or whatever, uh, which will make you forget why you're there, which he, which the man eventually does. You know, his psychopomp forgets that he's his psychopomp. And Patty and various members of the Guilty Remnant, her security detail is headed by the alternate reality version of Holy Wayne, who's the cult leader that Kevin's stepson fell in with in the first season, and who's who's, I believe, whose death Kevin witnessed in a men's room. Yep. And you're kind of reaching around to find out who this mysterious man is on the bridge, who offers him a choice of continuing on his journey to kill this little kid or hanging himself from the bridge. But there is no you were there and you were there and you were there for this guy until a season later, when an entirely different set of characters, led by a different leading man, encounters him on an orgy boat, where he claims to be God, and then sees him get mauled to death by a, by a lion. lion. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it freaked me out at the time when I got to that episode. It's like, oh my god, that's that guy. Yeah. That's the guy. Why is it the guy? We don't know. We're never told.
1: We're never going to know now because the answer is inside a lion.
0: Which is... Oh, I love it. I love it. There's it's no perfect. answers. Oh, I love it. There's no answers. It's great. Just absolutely perfect.
1: And yeah, with the, the metaphor to Lethe, there's another clear symbolic investment in water.
0: Mm-hmm. And of course, he
1: takes the child, Patty, to a well to kill her.
0: Yep. Yep. And even... The gun that he uses to kill Patty and her and her retinue is hidden in a toilet, which is a Godfather reference, which yep. the show points out, thankfully. But it's also hidden in a toilet tank, and that's water. That's water, baby.
1: Yep. <laughs> There's water in that, that toilet tank,
0: baby. It's one of the wettest episodes of Prestige Television ever filmed. I oh, my say.
1: God. It's so full of glistening skin. Yep. We love a good wet episode, don't we, Sean?
0: We certainly do. One like episode it wet. is
1: just nice and wet,
0: just to, just dripping. Yeah,
1: sopping like, really.
0: Like you just got out of the pool. Yeah, it's it's a very wet episode. Justin it's Groh, a very it's a very good wet. Yep, he's it's a he's a sweaty kind of guy, as my mother used to say about Neil Diamond, and <laughs> and it's just a thing that looks nice on screen, you know. It's nice. It's it, people look good when they sweat on television or on in film.
1: It, it makes the skin luminous.
0: Yep. Yep. You, you get that glow.
1: One thing we haven't really talked about is the person who is his psychopomp here, the concierge, mm-hmm. who I think is, is fairly important in the architecture of the whole season. He plays the father of Kevin and Nora's neighbor. I can't remember her name at the moment, but he also molested his daughter's current husband. Yes. When the husband was a young boy. Yes. And this is another, like, alluded to, unspoken thing hanging in the background of the show that's just chewing through the lives of people who don't know how to process it.
0: Mm hmm. He was shot by the grown-up version of the boy he molested, John. John, yeah, you know, repeatedly, and including in the dick, yep. Um, which sort of solved his problem in a way, and he's trying to spend the rest of his life atoning for that. And he's that—that's what he's doing in the in the afterworld too. He actually says to Kevin that he's atoning. That's why he's there.
1: Yeah.
0: Although he's also lying because he's dead. And he doesn't tell Kevin that, and that's really what he's doing there. It also is probably worth noting that the 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 molester turned psychic turned psychopomp, his name is Virgil. Yeah, Dante's which guide to the underworld. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not hiding this shit. No. Nor should they. I think. No. Why would
1: you? I mean, it's if the pieces are what they are. Why would you pretend otherwise? what you want is to take us on a journey that we recognize just enough of to place its unique elements in context. Yeah. You know, it's like, this is another connection to Mad Men. Mad Men got a lot of flack for being pretty obvious with its symbolism, but that was the goddamn point of the show.
0: Yes. Thank you. You know, you. It's,
1: it's symbolist television. They're showing you something you can recognize because they want you to recognize it. Because the message is not, oh, you figured out what the symbol means. It's the nature of the symbol they're presenting. They're not... You know, when Don makes an advertisement without a central figure, they don't want to buffalo you. They're showing you that he is experiencing like this dissociative urge to leave his body.
0: Yeah. You uh, I'm glad you used the word symbolist, because that was the word I used all the time when I was talking about Mad Men. And I think you can extend it backwards to the Sopranos and I think you can extend it to the leftovers as well. And there was this sort of prevailing uh sentiment among critics that if you can figure out what the symbol means, then it's no good. And it's like What the fuck is wrong with you? There's two things. First of all, you always figure out what the symbol means. Otherwise, you don't know it's a symbol. The reason you know it's a symbol is because you figured it out. So there's not some magic line of demarcation between these shows and shows where it's more occulted. You are just less able to congratulate yourself for figuring it out because you figured it out right away. Right. And And ultimately,
1: this is is just sort of another tentacle of the lost problem, people who are always trying to solve what they're watching. Mm -hmm. I mean, good for you. You know, they put a picture of the letter a on the screen and you turn to your date and smugly said, that's the letter a (laughs) the first letter in the (laughs) alphabet, you know, like you're not really engaged. Right. Just, you're just recognizing things and calling out the name as they appear. You're, you're operating at a kind of Sesame street level.
0: Yeah and you have to stop and think like maybe the show wants you to figure this stuff out. Yes, like, yes. Otherwise why would it even show you? It's not a guessing game all the time. It's no. not a puzzle to solve. It's it's meant to be evident and the power lies in how that makes you feel and how these how the how you react to these symbols. Not it, the point is not that you figured it out. Like you're not, it's not Sudoku. Like it's not,
1: this is art. There is an emotion waiting for you there. And if you will step out of yourself and step out of just this sort of problem solving mode, you could experience it and you can texture it with your own perceptions. What I thought of when you said that just now is the moment in the subsequent episode, which takes place in the same Underworld Mm -hmm. where Kevin attends karaoke after after he's shot by John in a really a case of mistaken identity, more or less. And he sings Homeward Bound. And the emotional connection of it is so obvious, you know. Kevin is is finally deciding that where he wants to be is home. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's no effort made to complicate that or to dress it up. But what there is is an incredibly emotionally rich performance to watch. Yeah. First of yeah. all, either Justin Thoreau is incredible at pretending he can't sing or he cannot sing.
0: He really cannot sing. I remember that.
1: That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Because he sells that song as crushingly as someone who cannot sing possibly could it mm-hmm. i burst into tears the first time i heard it me too the way too. his voice quavers i mean it's it's heartrending yeah and just understanding the obviousness of the metaphor you know he's he's singing this song in underworld karaoke because he doesn't want to die
0: Takes what a great away. sentence. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, what a funny. wonderful sentence. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, it takes nothing away from the sequence itself. And if you think that it does, you're really just sort of kneecapping your own experience with the art.
0: Yep. You know what the phrase was that people used for all this shit? Do you remember? Oh, God, no. What? It was... It's too on the nose. Oh
1: my god! How could I forget? <laughs> Christ, a whole fucking like three to four years of that shit in oh. every review. That and uh, what's your other favorite bug? There, stick the landing.
0: Oh Jesus, motherfucking Christ! And 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 that's even even over time. I've come to believe that it actually is fairly important that you get the ending of your show right. Yes. Um provided that you're able to end the show on your own terms, which nowadays. Most of the shows, certainly that we'll be talking about, were able to do, but like, it's such a fucking, it's can't, it's a su- it's 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 verbiage as a substitute for thought, like it, um, God, it's, it's too on the nose. It's like motherfucker. Maybe it, you're supposed to recognize what's going on. Like, imagine watching that scene in the the bar where he's singing karaoke in the hotel in the subsequent episode, and being like, well. He's singing Homeward Bound and he wants to get home. That's a little on the nose. Like, imagine you're served this fucking feast, right?
1: And all you have to say is, like, well, I
0: successfully recognized
1: that he was talking about the thing he wants to do. Yeah. That's nothing.
0: The Little lights are not twinkling.
1: <laughs> I just said that to someone the other day. I think about it a lot.
0: <laughs> it's incredible. What a... That and the, he worked really hard, Grandpa. So do washing machines. Yep. <laughs> Christmas National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation an unexpected font of wisdom for the ages. Um, Honestly, yeah, for real. I
1: mean, you know, it's incredible that his grandfather managed to be both so correct and so totally joyless in that one moment.
0: Yep. Yep. It's funny because, you know, as I'm doing research for the episode, uh, I went to the Wikipedia page and for this specific episode. And the summaries, International Assassin, received wide acclaim from critics who praised the, the episode's surreal presentation and the thematic depth, as well as Justin Thoreau's lead performance. And that's all true ish. But there really was, there genuinely was, a vocal, sizable contingent of mainstream critics. Who turned their nose up at this? Oh, I remember. Yeah, and
1: I was uh, personally insulted.
0: Yep, and the the two on the nose thing, you know this this sort of um, duck speak, in in, to take a phrase from nineteen eighty four. Like, not to get too meta, but I think one of the reasons you and I do this podcast is, you know, without casting aspersions on any one critic. I find that television critics tend to move in a sort of school like fish. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of which I really understand, like staff critics, which is not what I do. I'm freelance. um, People who are on staff have to watch so much fucking television and react to it in the moment that I think instinctively, they're always looking for the next thing to coronate and the next thing to dethrone because you get bored otherwise like and I, I do think it's under I think it's understandable I don't think it's good <laughs> no it does not
1: produce quality criticism
0: no no not at all but you know um, you, you, you see this with this rush to embrace you know whatever the flashy soap of the moment is which they don't forget about two seasons later it's like it never existed
1: you know there was that that great big giant bruhaha over that that chess show Queen's gambit yeah and I, I'll Bet you twenty dollars, I never hear about it again.
0: That seems reasonable. Maybe there'll be one other
1: noteworthy season. I mean, for the record, I've seen it; it's crap.
0: I mean, I think it's nice for Anya Taylor Joy, you know, who I guess will probably get more plaudits for this than her work in horror, which is mainly what she had been known for prior to this.
1: Yeah, great. You know, I I wish her all the best.
0: Yeah, sure. Um,
1: But that's sort of. Brings me to my next point, which is that I think that same sentiment is pretty prevalent even among freelancers who have to deal with such churn. Like, if you want to make money, you have to be constantly working.
0: That's true. I can say that for sure.
1: (laughs) Especially when you're first starting out. And that that is not conducive to making your best work. I have... You know, I'm, I've put out a few articles over the years that I think were kind of shabby. And I I would venture to say that that's the case for almost all my colleagues.
0: Yeah, there's things that, that I... it's
1: nice to live inside and eat food.
0: Yep, it is. And one thing that I think has become sort of more salient recently with the rise of Disney Plus is they need to be positive all the time. I don't know how, and we're going pretty far afield from International Assassin at this point. I hope that's okay. But um, I wrote about this on my Patreon recently, is that you? there is a push for positive reviews, specifically positive recaps or week episodic reviews, um, because the, the thinking is, and it makes perfect sense, that the people who want to read weekly recaps do so because they're watching the show every week and they're watching the show every week because they like it. Yep. And so they want to read somebody who also likes it. And if you are week after week pointing out the weaknesses in a show, people who watch the show because they like it are going to stop reading you.
1: Yeah, you and- know, in fact, my friend Siddhanta Klata recently lost a gig at IGN because he was critical of an episode of loki
0: yeah that was and, that was what i was thinking of
1: yep and it's not the first time i've seen something like that either you know uh early in my career i was let go from my comics reviewing gig because i was unwilling to change a review to be more positive to a comic that i thought was crap so that we'd have a better relationship with the publisher
0: yep and I, I had really thought – I used to work at Wizard Magazine, which listeners may or may not know, was sort of like a monthly – basically entertainment weekly for superhero comics. Yeah. It started in the late 90s. And I did a lot of work that I was very proud of there. But there there was a definitely a need to placate the big superhero publishers in order to maintain those relationships. And I remember a very, very high-profile book, a Spider-Man story arc or something that one of my close friends we all hated it we all fucking hated it cuz it was dog shit and he wrote a review and it was a very strong review that was negative and pointing out everything that was wrong with this and we want it just went up getting shit canned which i think is better than than deleting it for a positive review we just didn't review it at all um but yeah. now like in a way i can't believe that a lot of outlets today are actually less uh, scrupulous than fucking Wizard Magazine because yeah. they'll push you to be positive and if you're not positive, they'll push you out the fucking door. Yes, they will. This is something
1: well, I I think we really truly are pretty far afield at this point. <laughs> yes, I'm so sorry. No, no, that's fine. I was, I was right with you and I, I'm sure we could keep talking about this for hours. Mm-hmm. But to turn it back around, I feel like the things that criticism as a field schools toward so easily. And and this is kind of snobby of me to say, but in general, they're pretty digestible. And not very substantial. And they answer all the questions they pose. Yeah. And while the leftovers was Critically acclaimed, you know. I I remember the same backlash against it, against this episode in particular that you do. And I think, to quote, or to off-quote the guy from A Serious Man, people just cannot accept the mystery.
0: And it's right there in the fucking opening credits. Oh, I know. Yeah, just let the mystery the mystery be. be. Which, um, one of the best creative decisions made by the show. Period. Was replacing the incredibly dour—I'm going to say dour—opening uh, <laughs> theme that was used during the first season.
1: Oh yeah, the Max for- Richter piece, which is a a lovely piece of music that is about as exciting as dying in church.
0: Yeah, it's a dirge, yeah. and and they replace it with this sort of like jaunty, um, kind of like alt country. Song that said, "Think I'll just let, let the mystery be," which is like the whole, which is the beauty of the show, which we right. keep coming back to. Like they pro- they promised you they were never going to answer the question, and they and didn't. like they didn't. And I kind of find myself wishing there were more shows like that that had that ability to be like we're right up front, like in the in the interviews that tout the seat the series premiere, just to be like we're we're not going to tell you. Yeah. That's beautiful to me. I
1: think beautiful. And I think it's important too. Yeah. Because ambiguity is one of the most powerful tools that an artist has. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is due to the nature of art. It's a thing that occurs between an artist's finished work and the people who read it or view it. Yeah. And when ambiguity is present, that's a richer interaction. Right, because the the viewer has to do more work to contextualize it, to to find a version of it that they can fit into their understanding of the world in some way, even if it's just by acknowledging that they don't know what the fuck is happening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's one of so, my favorite things about the leftovers. and another thing that the show did constantly and in many different ways, is to show the absurdity of trying to find meaning in it. And what I'm thinking of specifically here is the actor, Mark Lynn Baker. Yeah. Who, when talking to Nora says with just the most like fixated, obsessive gravitas, three series regulars disappeared in the same moment. How can that not mean something?
0: Yeah, it's great. That whole Perfect Strangers angle was like, I couldn't believe, like it was very funny when they first did it and they showed him in hiding because he had pretended to disappear because everybody right. else in Perfect Strangers disappeared. And and then to bring him back in a dead serious role where he promises Nora, Kevin's love interest for the bulk of the series, that the somebody has built a device that can send her to where everybody else went. It's fucking brilliant. It's incredible. It's the, you take a fucking guy who played a guy on Perfect Strangers, you cast him as himself, and you have him, again, sort of be like a psychopomp who's going to lead her from this world to the next. Right. And I'm I'm glad you brought that up also, because one of the things, sort of the, the concluding beat of the entire series, if it's okay if we can go into this, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Is a reunion between Kevin and Nora, where Nora tells him what happened to her after they split up under very acrimonious and traumatic circumstances. And she claims to have been sent by this device to an alternate Earth where, you know, let's say there's 2% of the people on our Earth disappeared. Well,
1: on this other Earth, 98%...
0: Yeah. Right. It is gone and it's only the remaining two percent live there. Right.
1: Like the timeline diverged and two percent yeah. went into one and ninety-eight into the other.
0: Yeah. And she had to find a way to travel back from Australia where she lived to suburban New York, I think, to find her family. And, you know, she found them, but they were happy without her and she didn't want to screw that up, so she left them and came back. And you know, I, I took that fully at face value. I'll admit when I reviewed the finale, cause I thought it was such a beautiful story. And also because I thought there was some evidence that they were in fact sending people someplace because when she goes to this device, they lead out like a, a spent canister, so to speak yeah. where somebody had already done it and you can see the outline of a person, but there's no person. Right. So I'm like, well, the people went someplace. Um, and if she's alive again, it's not that they're not just killing them and vaporizing them. They're doing something with them that an enab- that they can eventually come back from. So I believed it completely and then there were other people who were like that's just a story she's telling. And that really kind of knocked me flat on my ass frankly because I just hadn't considered it. Um yeah. I had fallen, I had bought it hook line and sinker.
1: And I think that I think that either interpretation for whatever value of of true there can be in, in parsing art could easily be true.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that's very beautiful.
0: I I think you're absolutely right to say that ambiguity is really where art lives because art lives in the space between the artist and the audience. That's where art takes place. And And whether
1: she went to another world Or this is the only way that she's been able to make sense of the enormity of her grief to imagine this dream where her family doesn't need her as a way to allow herself to finally let go. That it doesn't matter, which is true. They're both true. Yeah. Because even if she did go to the other world, that's still what she did. She didn't go talk to them. She didn't see what would would have happened or how they were really doing. She saw them for a moment. They looked away that gave her permission to move on. And then she made her choice. And in a lot of ways, Nora is sort of the show's other protagonist Mm -hmm. and goes through something that's very similar to what Kevin does.
0: Right. You could even say that all of Kevin's experiences in this other world are set up for that final monologue by Nora where she talks about going to this other world. Absolutely. And it's beautiful. It is. It's. (sighs) And I don't need to know what happened. I don't no, need it.
1: No one does. It's what happened is that the the fist that is existing as Nora Durst finally opened. That's all.
0: What do you think? Should we call it there? I think we should call it there. Well done. Well done us.
1: Well done us. You've been listening to Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television and follow us on Anchor. and listen to us on spotify and wherever fine podcasts are hosted i've been your host gretchen Felker martin
0: and i've been your other host sean t collins
1: good night everyone